I'm Joe Devine, and welcome to Whiteboard Football Extra. Today, I'm joined by Alex Stewart to discuss the evolution of tactics at the World Cup between 1930 and 1950. But before that, I'd like to announce that throughout the summer period, UMAXIT Football is running a series of weekly competitions, uh, giving viewers, listeners and readers the opportunity to win a number of pretty cool prizes. Um, The first competition starts today. There should be a video on the YouTube channel explaining everything in more detail. But this week we'll be giving away three copies of Lutz Van and Steele's autobiography. Um, Some of you might remember we made a video about Lutz's career a while back. He's the world's best travel goalkeeper, first to play on six continents. And uh, he has a particularly amusing anecdote about stealing a penguin from a zoo, amongst other very interesting and funny stories. So it's uh, really worth a read, that one. To enter the competition, all you have to do is leave a comment on any of our videos on YouTube with the hashtag UMAXITGIVEAWAY1. And we'll write that in the description of this video so you can just copy and paste it if you want to. Um, Also, though, please make sure that you are either contactable through YouTube or that you leave your Twitter handle or some other form of contact in the comment itself. Because if we can't contact you, we can't send you the book. Um, If you are listening to this podcast on YouTube, just pop hashtag UMAXITGIVEAWAY1 in the comment section and you could win one of those three Lutz books. I think it's at the end of the week we'll be drawing uh, three random winners. So uh, thanks very much and enjoy the podcast. So you mentioned uh, that in 1880, a 226 was the primary formation, um, and then it took some decades for that to shift to a 235 which I suppose at the time was quite a big shift, but for us, looking back, it, it seems, you know, it's just the, the, the dropping to, of an additional uh, centre-half. Um, now that we see shifts, maybe not every year, but, you know, certainly a much smaller time scale. Uh, can I ask you the very simple question of, uh, why is history sped up? <laughs> simple question. Um, so I, I suppose as time moves forwards, you get proliferations of different, ideas if if you start in one spot in order to counter that and we we look at football tactics really as the kind of uh, a cycle of um changing something in an attacking sense and then changing something defensively to match it or changing something defensively and then having to find a way to unlock that from an attacking perspective so football tactics are cyclical in that way um and i think it's simply a question of the fact that as time moves forwards and and people develop more uh, ideas, whether it's defensive or attacking, then it's possible to come up with more ways of breaking those down. And so um, tactics doesn't grow exponentially, but I guess in, in, in the same way that technology speeds up and when uh, you know one advance leads to three or four other advances, it, it's the same with tactics. If you've, if you've only got to find a way of breaking down a two, three, five, then you can rely on individual skill or you can make certain tweaks. But as things started to push forwards, and as we'll see when we come to the 1950s, the 1960s, the introduction of things like the flat back four and proper defensive midfielders and so on, um, coaches have to work harder to come up with ways of of countering these new uh, systems. And that obviously 
allows them to think in different sorts of ways and come up with more and more ways which themselves then spawn things that have to be countered. You mentioned a flat back four there. Um, I mean, I suppose a more obvious, the beginning of the more obvious trend was passing. And of course, it's difficult to look back at previous generations and kind of, and, and judge their decisions or, or think, how did you not? How did you not think of passing before you did? Um, but they didn't, you know. So we, we talked about the kick and chase play, uh, or sort of dribbling with the, with the head down. I, I remember reading Jonathan Wilson's inverting the pyramid and and uh, reading those those long passages about you know whoever made the tackle would then turn around, run towards the opposition goal with the ball, get tackled, and then that player who tackled them would run with the ball, you know. And so it's it's interesting that um, that, that that passing you know wasn't there from the beginning of football in the form we see it now when did that start or 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 maybe better who who started doing that what you've got to remember with this early history of football is that it, it's like the early history of anything um we're relying predominantly on written record some of which is quite scratchy so i think we can we can assert that the early running in terms of passing, if that's not a terrible pun, was made by uh, teams north of the border. So um, Scottish teams and also one or two English teams that were closer to them and were influenced by them. The way the English game was played was uh, very much a head down, run with the ball, uh, you know, requiring bravery, I suppose, but also certainly speed, close control. Up in Scotland, they figured out that that actually you could make the ball do more of the work and you wouldn't have to run yourself so much. And that's where this, this idea of passing came in. Now that's not to say that as, as we pointed out, um, dribbling did not leave the game. Dribbling is still a massive part of the game. And, and the passing was very often from the back uh, forwards uh, to the sort of the six, and then they would tear off and start dribbling uh, as, you know, as was prevalent elsewhere. Um, so Scotland, probably the 1870s, 1880s, uh, then teams like Preston North End, who were the first team to go undefeated through a top-flight English season, they certainly were a passing side. Um, but I think it's like anything. You see you see dribs and drabs, you see bits coming in, you see teams trying to strike a balance between maybe a system or a style of playing that they're familiar with before, and then these newfangled things that certainly seem to work for some teams, so let's think about incorporating them, but without perhaps, you know, rushing too quickly into the unfamiliar style. Um, and as I say, you know, we're, we are relying on on written records. There's obviously, you know, clearly there's no um, video evidence of this sort of stuff. It's very much descriptions in, in newspapers and people's journals of, of how teams played. So it is quite difficult to get a real sense of how that change occurred. And I'm right in thinking that at the very, very beginning of the sport, obviously our campaign uh, for the World Cup starts in 1930, so we're quite a ways uh, away from the beginning of sport. But I thought it might be interesting to mention the origins uh, in the at once uh, football and rugby or forms of were the same sport. Yeah, so um, they're basically, I mean, there's, there's a style of, of something akin to football um, certainly that you can find in, in medieval England, they were significantly larger games. They'd sometimes pitch one whole village against another. Uh, and the idea was to carry the ball uh, into the opposition's village, um, or sometimes it was played on a field. And and there are forms of that that involved 
getting the ball across the line, whether that ball was carried over, thrown over, kicked over. Um, obviously, there are also forms that are similar to football, um, such as the original Calcio, uh, which was played in Florence and still is. Uh, there's even evidence of, of games that are very similar to football being played in China, you know, it's sort of 1000, 2000 BC um, in Mesoamerica, there were ball games involving rubber balls. So, you know, there's always been a kind of a, a form of, of a sport or a game or a pastime that involves your foot and a ball and moving it around. Um, in the English public school system, that was kind of codified and developed in certain ways. So different schools like Charterhouse or Rugby or Winchester College went in different ways. Um, so Winchester College, for example, still plays a game which is called Winchester College Football, which is not really played by anybody else. And it's an amalgam of rugby and football. So there are scrums as there are in rugby, um, but there is kicking um you can kick the ball from hand if you catch it, but if you if the ball is on the ground, then you can kind of hack it forwards as if it was football. So these rather odd games that thrived in the definitely rather odd environment of the English public school system in the nineteenth century, they you know they kind of morphed and changed, and and out of that came football as I suppose ultimately as we now know it. But obviously, it went through a series of you know of rule changes, codifications and so on that are, that are still ongoing um, to, to get it into the form that we understand now. Luis Felipe Monte, uh, the centre-half, you describe as one of the best players of the time um, and also how the centre-half position was the most important. Now, I wonder if you could um, extrapolate that to today and could you actually argue that the same sort of position on the pitch is equally as important you know, quite, I suppose quite recently, um, we've talked about Pirlo before dropping into that that deeper role. Uh, we've seen players like uh, Tony Kroos in, in in the recent Champions League final playing playing a very interesting role in that sort of area in the pitch. Um, obviously, it's it's an impossible question to answer, but uh, it, it's, I mean, presumably, it's one of the most important on the pitch still. I think it is an impossible question to answer. So, thank you so much for asking it. Um, Look, I think that role, that space in the pitch uh, in front of a back four uh, has always been crucial. I think what's quite interesting is that you now see players who are, take Tony Cruz, for example, you know, he he's generally speaking not there to break the play up um, and fulfill that screening function. That was Casemiro's job, and actually he did it brilliantly well in that um, Champions League final. Um, the old-fashioned centre-half, they did both, generally speaking. I mean, obviously there's kind of a sliding scale, so you had, you know, uh, on the one hand you had players like Monty who were... In fact, Monty's interesting because he could do both. So he could sit and man-mark somebody out of the game if it was necessary, but he could also push forwards. But you had people like Charlie Roberts at Manchester United who was effectively a deep line playmaker he occupied that space yes he could tackle um and close people down but it was about his passing a sort of proto paul skulls um pro- <laughs> paul skulls wasn't really that good at tackling no i suppose maybe more of a kind of michael carrick figure actually if you're going, if you're looking at a manchester united analogy and then you have people like um charlie herbert at arsenal 
who was much more, uh, you know, he he was a a very screening, very defensive, hard tackling centre half. So that position occupied a spectrum. And I think what you can see now is that teams, generally speaking, have a player in their midfield, whether it's a midfield three, midfield four, who absolutely fulfil at least one of those roles. So it could be, for example, the way that Victor Wanyama drops back uh, or Eric Dyer drops back into that space for Spurs. In the Spurs video we did, we described him as, as a halfback. Um, which is kind of what you call a you know a centre half now, um, because he is doing that screening role, but he's not stuck there. He's got the license to push forward and and to to pass and and drive the play up the pitch as well. So yes, I think you can see it being a, a thing that you know teams certainly recognise both that you need to dominate that part of the pitch, you need to protect your your back four or back three. But you also need a player there who's capable of being dynamic, who's capable of a range of passing and of carrying the ball forwards. Um, so I suppose it is, you know, it is a, a harking back to that style of footballer that, that we saw maybe in Monty. In this video, uh, we use a few examples of technical teams not winning. Um, in particular, the big physical Italy in 1934 beating Austria and then also 1938 beating Hungary. I suppose from this we we can infer that you know tactics aren't everything, and that, that football, to use a, a sort of inverse cliche, and I apologise for this, Alex, doesn't follow a script. <laughs> Thank you. That's awful. Um, we should be better than that, Joe. I know. Yeah, that football doesn't follow a script in the sense that the best or the most exciting team necessarily wins, um, but I think it. it does follow a script in the sense that the team who organises themselves, who thinks carefully about how their opposition are going to play and then reacts to that, can often win against a team who's better. So if you look at Manchester United against Ajax, I think most people would say that Ajax were the more exciting team, that Ajax had players of high levels of individual skill who are capable of doing a great deal to unlock defences. They were thoroughly outplayed by Manchester United, who were much more about being organised, having a system, having a game plan, attacking the weaknesses of that IX side, some of which were mental weaknesses, I think, a certain kind of fragility to do with their youth. Uh, and Mourinho steamrolled them. You know, that's... That is tactics. It's not It's not necessarily an innovative tactic. It's not an exciting tactic. And when we're looking at this period and, and you know, 34, 38, and we'll see the same thing in 54, we'll see the same thing in 74, you know, the teams that are kind of pushing the envelope tactically, Austria, Hungary, later on Holland, they play with verve, they play with excitement, they're doing something new. But if they come up against a team of very capable footballers, you know, I'm not saying that the organisation will beat skill if the organised team aren't good as well. You know, you still have to be able to tackle, you still have to be able to pass and score. But just because those teams were doing something exciting with a, with a dropping off centre forward or with, in the Dutch case, you know, total football, 
um, it doesn't mean that they'll win every time. And in fact, the World Cup is quite interesting for the litany of really great sides who've fallen at the final hurdle and usually fallen to a side who is very well drilled, very well organised. And, you know, we'll see this in 1954 with West Germany beating Hungary. You know, that was about setting up a team to neutralise what the other team was good at and then try and find a way through. And and that's that's how Italy won their two World Cups. You know, they they used Monty in that role. Okay, you've got a you've got a centre forward that's dropping off, he's a great player, he's willowy, he's exciting. I will just stick Monty on him. And that'll mark him out of the game. And and then, you know, that works. So that that's definitely tactics. You know, it's not it doesn't have to be new tactics to be tactics, if that makes sense. So uh, football's always the winner. Is that uh, another another cliche? If I thought I'd throw another one in there. <laughs> uh, sorry, it's very early. Um, we have a we have a, we don't have that many uh, user comments because we're actually recording this podcast um, about our first World Cup tactics video, which went out thirty eight minutes ago. So there aren't any specific questions yet. Uh, short of a, a number of people saying that they like the video, so thank you to those people. But we do have um, a question which was posted on our last podcast um, by The Ultimate Gooner. We put out a call for any questions about uh, the World Cup uh, project we're doing, and so this isn't specific to the video that's just come out, but it is uh, more broadly about the World Cup, so it's by The Ultimate Gooner. And they ask, uh, Pele once said that an African nation would win the World Cup by the end of the 20th century. As of now, no African nation has made it past the quarters. What do you think the reason is uh, for African nations that haven't been as successful as their European and South American counterparts? Quite a big question, Alex. I do realise that today's podcast has been full of very difficult things for you to answer. Hmm. Um, this is a difficult question. Um Look, I don't think it's anything to do with now. I don't think it's anything to do with the lack of quality of players or the exposure of those players to high-level club competition um, because there are African players playing across Europe's top leagues. Um, they're exceptional players and, and, importantly, they're playing alongside you know, very, very good teammates from from other parts of the globe and under managers who are very capable. So whereas before it might have perhaps been difficult to find really outstanding African players who had made it across into European football, um, I'm guessing for a variety of different reasons, you know, not least um, that scouting networks weren't as well established and maybe work permits were harder to come by, that kind of stuff. Those players have now been exposed to that. So if you look at, at squads and you look at uh, the the quality that you find within those squads, you then have to ask, well, how come they're not performing at the same level? Um, particularly when the Africa Cup of Nations does produce some really, really good football. Um, and, and I think a lot of it has to, to be put down to the, the organisation behind the scenes, the fact that there are still significant difficulties that that many of the uh, African countries um, uh, organizing bodies find in their relationships with the players. Um, and I, you know, I genuinely don't know enough about it to apportion blame here, but 
there are constantly disputes between groups of players and the sports governing bodies in that country over things like payment, travel. Um, there was a was it Hervé Renard who was recently saying that you know he he basically had to sort out all of the the flights and accommodation and stuff for his side going to Afcon because the the governing body for that country just hadn't hadn't got their act together and sorted it out. So logistics, infrastructure, training facilities, those kinds of things, you know, it takes it takes a small army behind the scenes to organize everything that's required to compete in a World Cup. And and the big countries, the big European countries, you know, there's a very kind of streamlined, smooth process for all of the things that need to happen behind the scenes, getting the right people there, getting the right accommodation, the right training, uh, places to train, all of that kind of stuff. And and it may just be that, that at the moment, because of various difficulties experienced by African countries in that regard, it's hampering them. Because, it, it you know, it can't be a level of skill. It, it can't be. And, and there are good coaches working in the African game now. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's a massive question. Um there's another way of, of looking at it as, as well, I think, um, and it's similar to the way that, that some English people might look at the England team, uh, in that there aren't enough in England, there aren't enough homegrown players playing at the, at the highest level, and um, you know we make the point that in Africa there, there isn't really a highest level. I, I, I uh, was in a cab a few months ago with uh, an African man who used to be a coach in Afri- a football coach in Africa, and I realised that that's not the uh, the best <laughs> that's not the best sample size. Um, but we we talked we talked about this a little bit, and one of the things he said that he found disappointing about football in Africa was that almost everyone who knew uh, was either a Chelsea fan or an Arsenal fan, Liverpool, Manchester United. There's not a great deal of support for you know football on home soil, and you know consequently there's not a great deal of money in it, in it either. Um, and so I wonder if if that has an impact as as well. I think it probably does. I mean, there are definitely robust domestic competitions in Algeria, um, Morocco, Egypt, even despite the the upheavals that country experienced. Um, I think South Africa's got a pretty good uh, domestic setup as well. Um, but but beyond that, yeah, I think you're probably struggling a bit. Maybe each team, or sorry, each country will have one or two very dominant sides. Um, and if you look at the, the African equivalent of the Champions League, you know, you do see the same sort of names coming up time and again. Um, but it's also, I suppose, because, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that there's to a degree a, a colonial aspect to this, which is that the, the, the best African players will be poached out of any kind of African domestic football not even the best ones necessarily, um, or sorry, by which I mean they don't have to be exceptional. Um, that that there's a kind of a sense that you know if if you get a certain style of African player, particularly a, a you know tall, physical, uh, energetic defensive midfield type, that there's a kind of straightaway European scouts going to be like, oh yeah, I can I can see him playing that kind of role, and that they just acquire those players and. And I think that that can be quite damaging. I mean, yes, the flip side to that is that the players are, are then, you know, they're, they're exposed to a higher level of football if they make it. But I think it's probably quite 
um, it probably disturbs the the opportunity for the establishment of a really good domestic league in many countries because anybody who's halfway goods getting poached and then may end up, you know, sort of in the reserves for a French fifth division side, not really doing very much, but, but they're not, you know, they're not taking their experience. They're not taking their skill and, and, and having it back in their home country. So that's probably an issue too. Um, but you know, people have written books about this question. So I, I'm not sure we're going <laughs> to, we're going to solve it in five minutes on a podcast. Fair enough. Well, thanks very much for your time this week, Alex. Oh, thank you, Joe.